You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience, powered by Westwood One here at CRTV and Conservative Review. It is Wednesday afternoon, January 24th, in the thick of such a busy week. I'm telling you guys, I really feel, you know, a large part, it's my responsibility the fact that I actually, you know, don't have a real job, you know, like you guys do, that I spend the time I have to be on top of as many issues as I can and give over to you, you know, pretty much everything I know to the extent I can give it over, um, just on all the important issues. And I'm just seeing there is so much going on. Obviously, immigration, healthcare, national security, Afghanistan, opioid stuff, um, you know, obviously, you have the FBI scandal, which I think on that issue, a lot of you are hearing enough about from other hosts, um, and that's a good thing. But there is just so much to get to. I don't even know where to start. But I think the way I'm going to try to give over as much as possible on today's show is by wrapping, wrapping, wrapping it around a thesis, and a very important thesis, of what I would do if I were in charge of the Republican Party now. Now, this is not just some sort of, you know, aimless hope that you guys are going to laugh at. Oh, yeah, well, of course, the GOP. I mean, you know, they're not going to do any of this. I'm going to give you very realistic things they can be doing. How growing the economy in conjunction with the rise of the alt-left is giving the GOP one more chance to lead. They're at a crossroads now where there's the convergence of a lot of positive economic news, the effect of the tax cuts, which is amazing, a teachable moment. The fact that in the next couple of weeks, it's going to get even better for them when withholdings begin to drop and paychecks begin to rise. So not just the bonuses we're getting from the corporate tax cut, which we were all told only helps rich people when in fact it helps all workers, but even we haven't yet seen the effects of the individual rate cuts, which we're going to see in a couple weeks. Obviously, the FBI investigation completely unraveling and, in fact, revealing that the opposite, that's an indictment of the FBI, an indictment of Hillary, um, that is really reaching a tipping point. And then Chuck Schumer losing the shutdown. All of these factors give Mitch McConnell and these guys one last chance to lead. And you know, we, we spent a good part of last year discussing how Republicans were, you know, we were getting all the liabilities of Trump, but none of the benefits. The things he was good on, his appointees and staff would squelch, and we'd just have his character issues, but we wouldn't get the good policies. And then the GOP Congress was terrible. They weren't accomplishing anything. The last couple of months, obviously, Trump's been on a roll. Still are problems on a lot of issues. We're going to discuss some of them. But he has been making meaningful change on a lot of important issues. And in Congress, we did have the one success of the tax bill. Now is the time to strike while the iron's hot. You know, I wrote an article this week. There's a lot of articles we have up. Make sure to go to CR, and you can actually click on my name finally and see the archive of articles. There's tons of them this week, just a lot of very heavy, important topics that that no one else is discussing but are nonetheless very important but i i wasn't being sarcastic when i wrote an article saying this is mcconnell's opportunity opportunity to become a statesman and what i mean by that is you know trump is far from perfect certainly the house of representatives is far from perfect but it's always been the senate that has scuttled any conservative progress even progress that Republican presidents and Republican majorities in the House were willing to do. We saw this certainly during the Gingrich era. We saw this in the first part of the 2000s when uh, Bush was president and they had majorities in both houses. It was always Senate Republicans that were just horrible 
indistinguishable from Democrats. McConnell could take out a number of lessons from what just happened with the government shutdown for what happened with the tax bill on how to proceed forward. And that would require two things. Number one is he has to at least threaten some reforms to the filibuster because otherwise they're not going to be able to get anything done. And I list in this article, there's a lot of things you can do short from abolishing the filibuster, enforcing, you know, talking filibuster rules, the two speech rule, maybe limiting the filibuster on budget and appropriation bills, limiting the number of filibusters on issues, but, you know, keeping it. There's a lot of things that they could do to at least get two or three transformational significant items through plus the budget, which is really the key because that's how you get all your priorities. And th- there's a couple of lessons he needs to learn. Let's start with immigration. McConnell should realize by now that the polling on immigration is phony. I have an entire article out on this explaining how if you really look at the meaningful polling, the American people want illegal immigration stopped. They want it to stop being a fiscal drain. They want the, the criminal alien stopped. They want the sanctuary stopped. And yes, they – they even want a reduction, a significant reduction in legal immigration and make that make it that the legal immigration we do have is all a net benefit, the brightest and best that the world has to offer, not the worst of chain migration. Now is a time for McConnell to be a statesman. Let me explain what I mean by a statesman by contrasting it to being a turtle. You know, McConnell's nickname by many of his detractors including yours truly, is a turtle because he acts like a turtle. Now, you watch the Democrat leaders, Durbin, Schumer, Harry Reid when he was in charge, Pelosi, they pound that lectern. They say, this is what we believe in. They make it very clear. They speak to the morality of their immorality. I mean, look at what they're willing to do to fight for illegals. And we, we talked about this um, in, our, in our podcast earlier this week. But yet you listen to McConnell, and he sounds like either a Fox News commentator, a parliamentarian, the sergeant of arms, like a presiding officer. Well, we're going to have a floor debate. We're going to vote on some amendments, and we'll see what happens. Well, 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 Mitch, what do you believe? What do you want? You know, ironically, the Speaker of the House, although it's become a partisan position, is actually officially legally more of a presiding officer, whereas the Senate Majority Leader in the Senate is that is a partisan position. You're the leader of the majority party. Drive a narrative. What do you believe? Drive it. Say, we are doing this. We are finally fulfilling the promise on immigration to the American people first. We're finally implementing enforcement and asylum and refugee reform and getting rid of sanctuary cities. And we're finally making immigration merit-based and ending chain migration. Polling shows this stuff pulls at 70-80%. Shove it down their throat. The problem is, instead, McConnell agreed as a condition to this stupid Schumer deal was to hold a vote on DACA, and then he promises an open amendment process, and whoever gets to 60 wins. That's not leadership. Have you ever heard of Democrats say... You know, Chuck Schumer get up there. Oh, I don't care. I don't have, I look, I'm I'm an outsider here. I'm not taking a position. Whoever gets to 60 wins. Well, look, we know between the Democrats and the Rhinos, they'll get to 60 on 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 amnesty. You need to be a leader and say, no, this is what we're doing. We're voting on the Goodlatte bill. We're voting on this is a bill produced by two House committee chairmen that have relevant jurisdiction over immigration. Mike McCall at House Homeland Security and uh Bob Goodlatte at House Judiciary Committee has the support of the broad membership of the House. This is what we're going to vote on. Instead, he's kind of allowing Flake and Graham to gain the upper hand and fight back against the House. And you know what? You and I both know we shouldn't be doing any amnesty now. That we shouldn't have to even you know, agree to some sort of even non-immigrant visa amnesty for 800,000 people, 700,000 people as a condition of getting what's rightfully owed to American citizens. But nonetheless, as a pragmatic move, we all said that if indeed all the elements of the Goodlatte bill would pass at once, 
we would agree to the non-immigrant visa amnesty as painful as it is and as much as we shouldn't do it again when there's quotes, and I have an article on this as well. We're going to link to all these articles in show notes. An article out with a quote nobody has found from the New York Times in 1986 with Chuck Schumer saying, this is a gamble, the amnesty, the Simpson-Mazzoli amnesty. This might not work. Employer sanctions might not work. Amnesty might not work. We are in uncharted territories, unquote. McConnell should sit there with an, you know, one of those easels they have on the Senate floor, go in front of the C-SPAN cameras, and promote all of Schumer's comments. And there's a many more when he said, oh, this won't lead to a new amnesty, and this will not flood your, you know, us with a number of illegals on welfare. And just crush him. Stand for something, Mitch. I get it. I get you're a Chamber of Commerce guy. I get the K Street business. But you've been doing that for 33 years. You're 75 years old now. You're at the twilight of your career. Come on, Mitch. The K Street game gets old. Be a statesman. Don't be a turtle. You were a turtle for 33 years. Now is your calling. You could do it. Don't you want to win? So at least promote the good lap bill. So, I mean, look, I don't think we're on the hook for amnesty, but they, in their mind, they think, oh, we have to do this. Okay, so it does it. It agrees to it. So you force the Democrats to vote against an amnesty because they so badly don't want future enforcement and legal reforms that they're even willing to oppose an amnesty. Do it. This is a very pragmatic move. We're not even asking for what we should get, which is only the good stuff. Pass the good lap bill. Unfortunately, there's no signs of him doing that. So that's number one on immigration. I mean, be that messenger. You know, there's so many good things you could do to the Democrats um, on DACA. It's fun. You could write a bill to put their money where their mouth is. They're saying these guys are the best of the best, and they're all entrepreneurs, and they're taxpayers, and they're not criminals, and they all know English. Well, you know what? Write a piece of legislation meaning attached to the amnesty components, the following conditions. Okay, so as part of your amnesty, you have to sign an affidavit that you're not taking any welfare or refundable tax credits. Well, after all, you're net producers, right? Right? You're net producers. Oh, and by the way, have some English language enforcement and make it that you can't use an interpreter for DACA applications, which, by the way, you go to USCIS's website And there's a place for interpreters. There's a box for interpreters to uh, fill in and sign affidavits on behalf of of the DACA dudes. I thought they know English. I thought they're more American than you and I are. I thought they know no other country but America. You see what I mean? It's so easy to deconstruct this. Darn it. It's just so frustrating. This is what a Republican Party could do. So that's on immigration. We're going to have a lot more on immigration. And by the way, I just just one thing I wanted to note. Um, I'm seeing on Axios now as I'm talking to you, liberals are starting to cry about the Goodlatte Bill. And they're saying that the Goodlatte Bill criminalizes poverty, right? Because it makes it that you can't be a public charge, which is really current law that applies to all legal immigrants. It's no different. You know, amnesty DACA people shouldn't be any different. Um, so that's uh, – you know, it's just kind of this is a growing narrative that that they're going to push. You're criminalizing poverty. So what they're what they're I believe what they're trying to say is that it's not just a precondition, you know, for getting uh, amnesty. It's that you're you're criminalizing a perpetual state of poverty. So meaning if they ever lapse into poverty or something, um, then at that point, you're going to criminalize that be that status of being and like rescind or deport them now first of all i would just note that you know there's a difference between americans and illegal aliens i mean i think that's kind of big no one's criminalizing poverty of being in the country we're saying you're here illegally anyway you should really all be deported but you know it's just hey if you meet these conditions and you're not a public charge we'll give you amnesty if not we won't give you amnesty it's not criminalizing poverty but moreover they're they're wrong on the details um because it doesn't do that it's it's only a precondition up front 
um, that they have to demonstrate they're not a public charge. If they became poor later on, then it wouldn't do anything to them. But moreover, also, it's not an issue about poverty. I don't care if you want to live in poverty, but then not take welfare. They're not necessarily synonymous. The problem is then they take welfare, which is completely unfair. But I just wanted to read read to you, um, you know, as we're talking about this, because I just thought it was funny. We actually have done this in past history. You know, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, as you know, I've studied immigration history a lot in preparation for my book, Stolen Sovereignty, and none of the political class knows anything about our immigration history. And on the one hand, they say, this is a violation of our traditions and history on immigration. You know, anything we want to do, they say is a violation. But then on the other hand, when we point out that actually even during our most open periods during the Great Wave, they were stricter than even we want to be now, they're like, well, that was racist. They, they were racist back then. Well, okay. But you can't have it both ways. I mean, either our history and tradition on immigration was racist or this is not our history and tradition. I mean, you can't have it both ways. But anyway, in the 1891 Immigration Act, I believe the Page Act, Section 11 of the bill – and by the way, it's amazing. You read these bills. They're one, two, three, at most four pages. The um, eloquence of the brevity is, is amazing, the way they used to write bills. They don't do it like they used to. And, and there's all sorts of things, and, and the theme always was that immigration should never, ever be a public charge, never be a public charge, that it should only benefit – that, that, that the American people shouldn't be on the hook for a penny even while we deport you. Let, actually, let me first read section 10, then I'll read section 11. Section 10. That all aliens who may unlawfully come to the United States shall, if practicable, be immediately sent back on the vessel by which they were brought in. Look at this. The cost of their maintenance while on land, as well as the expense of the return of such aliens, shall be borne by the owner or owners of the vessel on which such aliens came. And if any master agent, cosignee, or owner of such vessel shall refuse to receive back on board the vessel such aliens or shall neglect to detain them thereon or shall refuse to neglect to return them to the port from which they came or to pay the cost of their uh, maintenance while on land, such master agent, cosignee, or owner shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor and shall be punished by a fine not less than $300 for each and every offense. Um... $300, as you know, back in those days, who knows, that could have been like $10,000. And any such vessel shall not have clearance from any port of the United States while any such fine is unpaid. Talk about build the wall and make Mexico pay for it. It was deport them and make the people who brought them here pay for it. And notice that while you are on shore – see, right now, our, our um, the courts are violating 150 years of settled law and statutes where – by when you're on shore, if you make it to our land, you're not considered on our land. You're not entitled to anything, and any cost borne has to be paid by the illegals. Instead, here, they get taxpayer-funded uh, uh, legal representation to go and sue us for all sorts of rights. Now let me go to Section 11. Quote, that any alien who shall come into the United States in violation of law may be returned as by law provided at any time within one year thereafter at the expense of the person or person's vessel transportation company or corporation bringing such alien into the United States. And if that cannot, cannot be done, then at the expense of the United States and any alien who becomes up... Okay, period. I'm sorry, I, I ran a stop sign there. Let me read this to you. Section 11. And any alien who becomes a public charge within one year after... His arrival in the United States from causes existing prior to his landing therein shall be deemed to have come in violation of law and shall be returned as aforesaid. So th th these are people that, you know, keep in mind back then what we're talking about is not people who snuck into our country or violated the terms of their visa. They came here and presented themselves legally at a port of entry. Um, but nonetheless, you couldn't be a public charge. And if you were to become a public charge, even up to a year afterwards, you'd get kicked out. So, you know, no one else is going to bring this to you. But anyway, it's not what the what the bill does. It's immediately upon once you're accepted, you're accepted. But 
just the truth be told, they actually did have a provision uh, in the past of what they're accusing the Goodlatte Bill of doing. But let me go on. Let's move on from immigration. We're going to talk a lot about that in the coming days and, and weeks. The other big lesson McConnell should take out is the tax bill. We live in a polarized society. I've said this before that it's always easy to be the anti, to be the negative. You're going to win out in the polling. It worked for Republicans when they were in the opposition. It's going to work for Democrats when they're in the opposition. And also, people are scared of uncertainty. And it allows the side to demagogue. And you saw this. The, the tax bill polled at 18%. But if you believe in the veracity of what you're doing, and you know it's going to be better for the people, you know the results would follow. That is statesmanship. That is leadership. You do something that you know will engender movement in the polls. You don't follow the polls. You make the f- polls follow the righteousness of your arguments and your policies. And it's working. No one could deny it with the tax bill. They need to learn that lesson with Obamacare. Repeal Obamacare. Go back to that. Don't, the polling, oh, people are scared. Just do it. Don't talk about it. Do it. And then it's a different dynamic. The status quo is now it's gone. The premiums come down. And add the 20, 30 other ideas we have on price transparency. Ending the monopoly of insurance companies to price fix with, with providers and box out providers from uh, you know giving self-pay discounts. And, and the practice of forcing doctors who take Medicare and Medicaid to uh, not allow direct primary care. Because right now, you, it's either all on or all off. If you take Medicaid, you have to take, you know, take it always. If you take Medicare, you have to always take it. Um, you, know, you cannot go DPC. You're immediately subject to all the regulations. A lot of important things we could be doing beyond the scope of this show, but we're going we're gonna to get back to it at a different point. But um, this, is, this is a big deal. There's a lot we can be doing. Repeal Obamacare. You, they, they, they should take the lesson that the polls are superficial. They don't matter. And again, that's going to require that they pass another budget reconciliation bill, but really they do need to do something about the filibuster. Democrats are going to get rid of it anyway if they ever get the presidency on the Senate back. So that's number two, Obamacare. We cannot forget about it, and we're not going to let that go. And I just want to point out one other thing on this issue. What, what bothers me so much, the same way you're seeing this emergency, urgency uh, cliff, a political cliff of DACA, DACA, uh, deadline, fix. What about us? You know, the fact that they're putting illegal aliens before America. You know, what about the urgency to take care of the criminal alien problem? American dreamer is being killed by these dreamers. California just literally on the cusp of registering illegal aliens to vote, being a neo-confederacy. Javier Becerra, the attorney general of California, saying he's going to criminalize employers who cooperate with ICE on federal law enforcement. What about that urgency? You find a similar thing with healthcare and welfare. Even if you believe that it's within the purview of the government to also have welfare, to also do Obamacare, which of course is not constitutional, but let's say that's your view. But the notion that freebies come before the free market is the same. Look, there are Americans. I'm not comparing Americans on Obamacare to um, and Medicaid to illegals, but it's a similar context. That wait a minute, you your responsibility is to the people paying $2,000 premiums who are not getting subsidized, who don't want to be regulated and don't want anything. They just want to be left alone and have the unalienable right, a pursuit of happiness, to either on the provider side to provide any insurance policies, any health care plans they want, and on the consumer side to buy any plan you want, unfettered by government market distortion subsidies and regulations. That's your responsibility. If you have something left over to have a little bit of a safety net program, then that, that's secondary. But the notion is all about, oh, Medicaid, Medicaid, S-chip, S-chip. You know, this whole discussion, oh, we, we got to save S-chip. 
And, and it's amazing, even if you agree to the premise, they're getting subsidies from Obamacare and Medicaid expansion, so you don't even need it. Yet who's helping those middle-class families, or if you're single, it's not even that much. If you're single, I believe, give or take, it's if you earn over $70,000, you're, you're, you're out of the subsidies already. You're, you know, if you're not getting it from the, your employer, you're screwed. What about that fix? Stand for the forgotten man, just like you stand for the forgotten man on immigration. Very simple. And then finally, I want to get to the party seizing the mantle of draining the swamp, the government corruption, and the corruption in our military leadership, and ending this Afghanistan fiasco once and for all. I really got to get this off of my chest. This really bothers me. I've largely stayed away from the whole Mueller stuff, the Russia scandal, Comey, FBI, um, just because so many other people were covering it. You know, Mark Levin, obviously, I know all of you, most of you listen to him. Uh, You know, I, I don't have much to add from what he was saying, what Andy McCarthy was saying, and I'm just so busy on the policy issues that I'm just going to keep my brand and focusing on the policy issues, not that some of the more scandal issues aren't necessarily important. Um, so don't read into too much of what I cover, don't cover. It's A lot of it's just the timing thing or a matter of if I feel other people aren't addressing a certain issue and I feel I have something to add to it, you know, because contra some other people in this business, I don't just bloviate if I don't have anything really incisive to add. But what's... Starting to happen here is this whole thing is reaching a tipping point between the House committee memo, between the text release that we know, between the coming full circle of the Obama emails with Hillary, the information that we have from the struck text, the missing text, the timing, the merging of the same people who covered up the Hillary investigation, then being tapped for the Trump investigation on Russia demonstrates that this is a public policy issue. Forget about Trump and Russia and Hillary and emails for a minute. Forget about Trump and Hillary. This is about something much bigger. This is about corruption in our government. This is about something we've been talking about for a while, that in all Western democracies, and we could give philosophical reasons logistical reasons and biblical reasons as to why it's true. But nonetheless, it's quite evident that every major government, media, political, elite institution in Western societies have become rotten to the core um, by this monolithic, almost like a, you know, when you have a monolithic breeding of genes in a gene pool, you have, you know, just all sorts of diseases and problems. This monolithic way of looking at the world has breeded both a terrible policy outlook, but it's also breeded corruption because progressives in Western society have reached the point where they've become more religious and fervent in their beliefs than anyone who's religious in that they believe, like Solinsky did, that the the ends justify the means. And I think it's important to view the revelation of this entire FBI scandal within the proper context of um, illegal immigration, you know, that this is the big issue going on, the government shutdown. You have a Democrat party that literally doesn't believe in the rule of law. You have Javier Becerra, Attorney General of California, declaring himself a neo-Confederacy for illegal aliens. Because they speak to the morality of their immorality. They believe in their view so much that they are willing to breach the most basic legal boundaries to achieve it. That's the real story here. It's not a matter of Hillary. I don't even care so much if Hillary ultimately goes to jail or not. It's much bigger than Hillary. She's just one person. It's that the entire FBI and DOJ, and it's really endemic of all these bureaucracies and their respective issue set, but it's more potent here because they're supposed to be into law enforcement, that if something will interfere with a political outcome, they will stop at nothing to break the law to prevent it. 
and it was deemed that Hillary was too big to fail. And it seems pretty clear now that this goes all the way up to Loretta Lynch and Obama himself. That they were willing to do who knows what to cover up. And then obviously have the second part of that, then the jujitsu on Trump, where they would go and, and again, for political objectives, spy on your opponents um, with the um, Fusion GPS dossier going to the going and uh, spying. And, and this is a huge problem. And, and let's not even get into the fact that Republicans stupidly reauthorized Section 702 of FISA without any reforms when, you know, it literally was the impetus for this. But there's the self-immolation there. We'll talk about that another time. But the broader point here is that we have irremediable corruption. And, and it's, it's not so much, it's not even just, you know, you, you usually think there's a pay for play, money, changing hands. You know, you had in the VA scandal, a lot of that where um, the head of the Phoenix VA hospital was passing contracts to employ, uh, you know, VA contracts to a employee who just left, went from the VA to a private contractor. You know, that's the typical stuff. That's more understandable. I'm not saying it's not bad, but it's more understandable. Here you have its ideological corruption, progressive ideological corruption. That it, 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 it justifies the end. I will burn down my country with Islamic refugees and Islamic immigration and illegal immigration and sanctuary cities and MS-13. I will not give a damn about things that anyone would have cared about, even Democrats cared about a generation ago. You look at Harry Reid's immigration bill because this is what is needed for a progressive majority. Democrat votes. We need illegal immigration, so law doesn't matter. And this is going to hurt us, so law doesn't matter. So Hillary and, and Obama must be exonerated. We, Trump is Hitler, so we must break the law to use the levers of power in the FBI to break laws and go after him. And again, this doesn't exonerate you know, Manafort and some of the stupid people that he had worked for him that had dirty relationships that you know, are problematic no matter what. And I'm certainly not going to play the binary game with that, but but that but this is much bigger. This is a much bigger deal, much bigger than I I even thought last year. It's time for Republicans to seize this. Call for a special pro- counsel, end the Mueller investigation, fire Deputy FBI Director McCabe and Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein. Right until now, they were kind of you know as tough because it would look self-serving for Trump. But now they have the goods. Release the memo and, and let, let's, let's move on this. But I don't want to stop there. I want to continue this thesis of irremediable corruption at the highest levels of government, at formerly the most respected institutions, and the notion of progressives taking them over and willing to do anything to achieve their political ends. That there's no sacred cow. It's not like, okay, we disagree on healthcare and education, but my gosh, there are certain things about law enforcement, about the troops, about security, about sovereignty that we could all shake hands on and agree with. No. And why that provides Republicans with an an amazing opportunity to, A, do the right thing, um, and that really should be the end of it, but Republicans only do something if they think it's politically auspicious. So I'm trying to show how it's politically auspicious. And that's really the other half of this podcast. You know, how A, the good economic news and the tax cuts and the unraveling of the FBI scandal is an opportunity for Republicans, but also the radicalism of the alt left that has taken over the Democrats, that they're so self immolating in their pursuit of such extreme views that are beyond even where this transformed country is. And it is transformed, but they're well beyond where, where the average, the median ideology is in this country. They have a tremendous opportunity. I want to talk about Afghanistan. You know, Special Inspector General for Reconstruction in Afghanistan, it's called the Cigar, Cigar Report, has put out a number of reports that basically the Afghani government and security forces are corrupt as hell, we're doing nothing there. Casualties are mounting. Um, there's more blue on green attacks. There's nothing changing after 15 years. It's getting worse. And we're doubling down on this craziness. But there's a new report, and I have an article out today detailing it. 
and it's going to be a two-part article. The first part's out today. We'll link to it in show notes. Second part tomorrow, and more or less putting out what I'm what I'm about to give over. The report details that two-thirds of the organizations and people in Afghanistan they spoke to have confirmed what I mean. The sky is blue, and I know this is obvious that the Afghani military units engage in this ritual of. Um, there's no other nice way of saying it, but the the word they have, I'm forgetting the Afghani word. Um, it's in my article. Boy, boy play. Straight up homosexual pedophilia, where they just screw around with boys. And I've heard from a number of veterans, and I'm sure you guys know, you know who are veterans could speak to this, that have served on bases where the outer perimeter was guarded by Afghani soldiers, and they heard screaming in the middle of the night and all sorts of things. This was a rampant problem. The New York Times of all. Um, institutions actually blew the lid on this in 2015, which was the impetus for Congress demanding the cigar report. And what's very evident is that along with a strategy, along with speaking the truth about the, just strategically what's going on in Afghanistan, the top military brass, Nicholson and Votel from CENTCOM, and all these generals that Trump rightfully identified last year or two years ago as reduced to rubble and that they all need to be fired, they're willing to cover up anything to keep their racket going. Just like the FBI, it was too big to fail. Hillary Obama, their racket was too big to fail. So this endless engagement in Islamic civil wars that hurt our troops, get our troops killed for nothing. They're shedding blood, some of our best special ops, for a bunch of pedophiles who are just as Islamic as the Taliban. And there is no you know, demarcation between, between the Afghani forces and the Taliban. They're all the same ill culturally. The, the Taliban are nothing but a reflection of the people there. They're not really a trans, you know, international terrorist group that affects us. I'm not saying they're good people. They're horrible people, but that's the point. Stay out of it. It doesn't affect us. But because it will hurt our relationship with the Afghani forces that we've given $72 billion to, they cover it up. This is a bipartisan, you know, you talk about a bipartisan DACA fix. We need a bipartisan Afghanistan fix. And th- there actually is, at least, especially with a Republican president, you know, they're, they're willing to be more righteous on this opportunity from Leahy and Kane and these type of guys that are, you know, very not into the Afghanistan war, maybe for their purposes, but that's fine. End this. End this. No one wants the Afghan war. Notice what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about suggesting they end Social Security and Medicare, abolish the federal minimum wage, abolish Head Start. Those are tough issues. These are winning issues. Common sense, and they're so important. Not just is it important because we're depleting our military and destroying our forces, the morale of our forces, with these aimless refereeing of Islamic civil wars. And then we're depleting our deterrent or resolve our hardware or wherewithal to deal with Iran and North Korea, the real threats. That, that's certainly true. But it's also a budgetary issue. Now let me get into another issue here. One of the big betrayals that's coming forth is the budget betrayal. As you know, Trump put out a very good budget blueprint because um, he has great um, staff there. Mick Mulvaney is OMB director. Russ Vogt is deputy OMB director, a dear friend of mine. Um, they put out the, the best budget since Reagan. Major cuts to all the wasteful you know, non-defense programs while still beefing up uh, defense spending by $54 billion a year. But it's not enough. So what's happening is the defense hawks and John McCain, and when I say defense hawks, I don't mean that in a good way, in the way you and I view defense. It's all about spending, 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 even the Freedom Caucus. Their big deal was we need a long-term defense deal that busts the budget caps on defense spending. And I'm saying to myself, we have a military that is turned into a social petri dish for homosexuality, transgenderism, female pregnant Navy SEALs, and then you abort the baby therapeutic abortions in the military to quote the undersecretary for defense on uh, on healthcare health affairs we have anti-religious bigotry in the military we have you know pro-islam indoctrination 
and then the entire premise of what their mission is. No one wants to have a debate. How about a, not a debate over spending figures, but a debate over what is the military mission? As conservatives, of course, we want a robust defense. Of course, to a certain extent, we do need to rebuild some of the base defense from Obama downsizing it. I don't disagree with that. But military is no different than anything else in that as conservatives, we believe that fundamentally most problems are not spending issues. They're policy problems. And if you reoriented our right policies, it would fix the spending problem. You know, classic example is healthcare and education. Yeah, you have to continue pumping money into it because you created a cartel monopoly that keeps gouging you but using the boot of statute and government subsidies. But if you would change the way you view and approach healthcare, the spending would fix itself. Same thing with the military. If we stop the stupid Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria nonsense, where you have non-nation states with no outcome, with 30-way civil wars, no nothing we can do about them, they don't really affect us, you got out of there and you preserved your deterrent for the true problem, Iran and North Korea, and then you would have a robust homeland security policy. You wouldn't. That's the irony. We go there because supposedly we need to to protect ourselves. Then we bring in Afghani immigrants. Record numbers, by the way, record numbers of Iraqis. Now record numbers of Syrians because we're there. And yet we do nothing about North Korea and Iran. And then, by the way, you use proper soft power. Which leads me to Syria. No one, no one's talking about this. There's a silent Iraq 2.0 in Syria going on. Well, you would think ISIS is gone, so we should be out of there, right? No. Tillerson and Mattis and CENCOM announced basically there's an indefinite occupation there there. And their goal is to overthrow Assad. Now, you'd say to yourself, well, why are you there? So they say, well, we don't want to make the same mistakes of the past of Iraq where we got out too prematurely and um, you, know, you had a resurgency. Now, they forget the fact that we only had the insurgency as a response to our troops being there with no purpose. But also they're forgetting something. Look how counterintuitive this is. So you're supposedly scared of resurgence of ISIS. Guess who's who's a mortal enemy of ISIS? Assad. So you're going to get rid of him. That's how you're going to have an insurgency. That was the problem when you got rid of Saddam. Look at the perversion of our foreign policy. Think about this. This administration wouldn't kick Iran while they're down. Iran, here's, there's three differences between the Iranian regime and Assad. Number one, Iran is the big fish. Assad is just a weak puppet of Iran. Iran is the upstream problem. Number two, Iran is, is a proud Western or somewhat Western-oriented non-Arabic nation that is very likely regime change could succeed. With Syria, it is like Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not a nation state. It never was before World War I. It's a tribal problem. You're never going to put that together. You're going to own it. You're going to have endless issues, trillions of dollars spent. Who knows how many lives lost for nothing? Those, those are the clear differences. And, not, and finally, the difference is with Iran, we're not even calling for an invasion. You merely had to just use the tools. We, we, we spoke about with our a podcast with, with our national security correspondent, Jordan Schachter. We had an article out listing a number of ways we could have used soft power to push for regime change. But instead, they, re, they um, you know, say we're not putting on sanctions and we're not calling for regime change. Just don't be too brutal in putting them down. They wouldn't even use soft power. Won't use soft power against Qatar. Won't use soft power against Turkey. Nothing. Oh, but Assad, oh, he's an ally of Iran. We have to use hard power to go after him when it's completely untenable. There's no hard power to use. And it completely contradicts our other mission. The, and, and one more perversion here. The only possible interest you could have is protecting the gains in the far eastern part of Syria where the Kurds took it over, where the Kurds could hold the ground. Instead, 
We're giving Turkey's doing operations to go after them, and we're basically signaling, just like we did in Iraq, throwing the Iraqi Kurds to um, to the Iranian-backed uh, Baghdad government. We're throwing, we're basically throwing Kurd the Kurds to Turkey and Syria. Literally, if you had to make a matrix of permutations of things, do's and don'ts, and I've done this, I have charts out in some of my articles. You could Google, you know, Daniel Horowitz do's and don'ts in the Middle East. And we're literally doing the opposite. What we shouldn't be doing, we're doing what we're not doing, you know, what we, we're not doing what we should be doing, and we're doing what we shouldn't be doing. And this gets back to the budget. Let's have a discussion about what our military is there for. What are our foreign policy priorities? Then come back to me on spending. But I'd venture to say that roughly with the same funding we have, maybe a little increase, we could fulfill our mission if we actually oriented our foreign policy as America first and properly use the military. But instead, it's just like Obamacare and, and the insurance bailout. Well, yeah, if, if you're going to give the insurance companies a monopoly, well, yeah, you're going to have to bail them out. It's the same thing. But, but, but just to, so, so that's a big budget problem. And because of that, th- that's our hostage. Oh, I'm so scared of military spending. And therefore, they, the Democrats take it as a hostage. They know we badly want it. And this is why we never could cut spending. Because then they say, all right, well, then you have to have non-defense spending increases. If we were to say, screw it, we're going to reorder, we're done with Afghanistan, we're done with Iraq, we're done with Syria. You know the amount of money we'd save? No one really has a good estimate. But keep in mind, it's, 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 it's a three-legged stool. It's OCO, the actual overseas contingency operation, the actual operation. It's base defense because you're depleting your hardware on, on, on nothingness and stupidity. And then C, it's the VA. People forget the VA is an enormous cost. What is it, like $150 billion a year? Um, and that's considered non-defense. It's not even included in defense. It's non-defense discretionary. Um, y- you know, we talk about how we have, I forget, what, six, 7,000 fatalities in Iraq and Afghanistan. But there's been about 30,000 wounded. For what? I mean, we could have, like, taken over Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran for that. With, with fewer casualties. Because the truth be told, in those theaters, you could actually succeed in regime change without counterinsurgencies. They would actually succeed given the nature of the people in the, the countries. I'm not suggesting we necessarily do that. I'm just saying that would be more sane than what we're doing with Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Which just makes no sense. And this is so achievable. Nobody wants it. Democrats don't want it either. But the military brass, they're corrupt as hell. They don't care about the lives of, of the grunts doing the work. You know, the New York Times of all outlets was actually good on this issue. They reported three Green Berets that got punished for beating up these uh, pedophiles there in, um, in Afghanistan. But my point is, progressives have taken over the military. They've taken over law enforcement. The Border Patrol is pretty much the only thing they haven't taken over. But um, they are so radical, they're willing to do anything they, they can to achieve their goals. And that is the opportunity for Republicans. They're not well-liked. But the Democrats are so insane. You know, They're always talking about, oh, you have to vote for us because Democrats are bad. So actually give us something to vote for, and you'll benefit from that from the fact that people are scared of Democrats. You know, it's amazing. There's two Pew polls, or actually one's Pew, one's Gallup, out on Israel and immigration that show the amazing rise of the alt-left takeover of the Democrat Party. Again, you know, Democrats, we used to disagree on markets, on subsidies, this and that, but we all agreed on certain things. Everyone used to be pro-Israel. A new Pew poll shows that you know, as conservative Republican support for Israel is at an all-time high, now a plurality of liberal Democrats support the Palestinians. And that's a dramatic and very abrupt, precipitous change from just, you know, five, eight years ago. 
you're seeing that rise of the alt-left. You're seeing it on immigration. Gallup has an amazing pullout. People forget, forget about illegal immigration. Legal immigration. The overwhelming majority and still overwhelming majority of the country wants um, less immigrate, legal immigration. And that was supported even by 55 to 60% of Democrats as recently as, as just 10 years ago. That has plummeted now because of the rise of the alt-left. And that's scary. I mean, the 2020 Democrat primary, oh my gosh. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, one candidate just like gets a sex change operation on air just to, you know, solidarity. I mean, that's how radical these people are. But there's the opportunity. The Schumer shutdown showed that. That they're going to shut down the government for illegal aliens. Now is the time to do what Stonewall Jackson wanted to do after Manassas. Press your advantage. Press it on a repeal of Obamacare. Press it on, you know, putting an America first immigration bill. Press it on ending the nonsense in Afghanistan and using the savings for the military and telling the Democrats to get lost on non-defense spending. Press it on rooting out corruption at every level of government. I believe this is going to be their last opportunity to save the midterm elections and to make some sort of use out of the GOP even existing. Am I hopeful? No. But I do think that you have to lay down the marker. And I'm I'm willing to work with anyone, including McConnell himself, to get these policies through. You know, when Moses uh, warned Pharaoh about each of the plagues and to let the Jews go from Egypt, even after he tricked him six, seven times and I'll let them go and then didn't, Moses still came up to him and he said, look, you know, I think this was after the, this was after the plague of, of the hell. Moses said, look, you know, I'll pray to God to get, get rid of the hell, but I know you guys are going to lie to me again. I know you're going to go back to your wicked ways, but I want to just lay that marker down. And that's what we're going to do. At any given moment here at Conservative Conscience, we're going to lay down what we should be doing. What, what, and when I say should be doing, I don't mean in a utopian conservative way. I mean what's very realistic, even given the nature of the Republican Party that we have and the media we have and the political climate we have and the populace we have. Whether they do it or not is a different story, but we got to speak the truth. I hope this was informative. I tried to wrap in a lot of issues here. I wanted to cover them as an end to itself, but they all tie into this thesis of the left get go, becoming crazy, willing to punch through anything to achieve their means, whether it's military brass, whether it's FBI leaders, whether it's elected Democrats on immigration. And the opportunity McConnell and the Republicans have to get on message, support the Trump agenda, and help Trump himself obviously stay on message. We'll have a lot more. I hope to have some members of conservative members of the House on to discuss each and every one of these issues. I want to make that more of a regular feature like we had Massey on, talk about guns. Um, we've got a lot of good feedback. I know you want to hear from them, so we're going to put them on as well as, as uh, some candidates, as we promised in our Meet the Candidate series. Stay glued to CR and CRTV. Make that your one-stop shop. We promise to have as comprehensive coverage as we could conjure up with our small staff. Thank you for your support. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.